BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey, this is Brett. We're taking a break today from a new episode, but we're going to rebroadcast episode number 524, where I talk to legendary boxing trainer Teddy Atlas on what it means to be a man. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back Wednesday with a brand new episode. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Teddy Atlas was born to a well-respected doctor in a wealthy part of Staten Island. Most kids like him end up going to an Ivy League school to become some sort of white-collar professional. Teddy? Well, Teddy dropped out of high school, went to jail, and ended up becoming a trainer to 18 world champion boxers, including heavyweight champion Michael Moore, who defeated Evander Holyfield for the title in 1994. Today on the show, I talked to Teddy about how and why he took the path he did in life. Teddy explains how he ended up boxing under legendary trainer Customato and how Cust got Teddy towards becoming a trainer himself. Teddy then shares stories of training kids in the Catskills, taking them to unsanctioned amateur fights in the Bronx, and the lessons he learned from boxing and his father about personal responsibility, managing fear, overcoming resistance, and what it means to be a man. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash atlas. Teddy joins me now via Skype. All right, Teddy Atlas, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it. So you are an ESPN analyst for the sport of boxing. You've also trained 18 world champions, and you're also the author of the book, It's Atlas, From the Streets to the Ring, A Son Struggled to Become a Man, and you've also started a podcast, The Fight. So I just finished your book, Atlas, and it's an amazing story. It's about your story of how you started, you became a, a world-class boxing trainer. And what's interesting, the story of how that process began, begins when you were a child. You were the son of a, a respected doctor who worked really hard. And, but somehow, you know, despite being the son of a respected doctor, you, you end up being a high school dropout and you end up uh, start committing crime. Like, how did, how did that happen? So my father was a GP, a general practitioner on Staten Island. He took care of everybody. He took care of all the poor. took care of people that fell through the cracks. And as part of that, he built this hospital that had 22 beds in it. It was called Sunnyside Hospital before Verizon Bridge was built. And he took care of people that, you know, this was way before the idea of Obamacare or there were no HMOs. There was really, really, it was basically nothing if you didn't just have a doctor like this or, and there wasn't too many of them, I don't think, that existed. But, or if you didn't, you'd, you'd wind up in a clinic. In a clinic, it might not be... the the greatest care in the world. So my father wanted these people to have the best care possible. So he built his hospital so they would get the proper hospital care and he would absorb the cost. The people that had money, that had proper insurance, that would obviously keep the place open. And as I said, the rest of it, he'd he'd find a way to absorb it. He would just make a little less money, that's all. And this hospital lasted for about 25 years. And then 
the city built the bridge and they came in and where the hospital was was where the highway was going to be. So they they bought it from, they tore it down. He wound up finding another hospital, which yes, a few years later called Doctors Hospital with 60 other doctors, but he was the original founder. The only way I could be with him was to go on house calls. He did house calls till he was 80, charging $5. And he didn't charge when he went to a lot of places. He went into the projects. He went to a lot of places that a lot of other doctors didn't go. And he didn't charge. If, if it called not to charge, he didn't charge. So I to steal time, and that's what I was doing. I was stealing time. I was just a kid. I was only seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. You know, I kept going, maybe 12. 13. And that's how I that's how I got to be with him. Go on house calls, go to the hospital when he went for the visits. And so I figured that I, I guess I, I I wasn't I wanted him to be at baseball games. I wanted to throw a football with him. I wanted to do other things. And you know, this is gonna sound selfish, and it is. It it is selfish because I was just thinking about what I wanted, obviously. You know, we we all have that habit at some point. And so even though I was with him, it was only under these conditions where it was, you know, on on the terms of his life, on on his turf, so to speak. And I guess I wanted him in other places in my life. And so with my infinite wisdom of basically being an idiot, as I got older, I started to get in trouble because I realize it now, the people that got his attention were the injured, the fractured, the, the messed up in some cases, and the sick. So I got sick. I got, I got sick in a different way, you know, and I, I started uh, getting on the streets and getting into things, not good things, and I thought it would get his attention. And that was obviously, you know, I guess the definition of a misdirected kid. I definitely was misdirected. But, and I'm not trying to make it more or better than it was because there's a righteousness in thinking that you're doing something. There's a, there's a cause behind it. There's a purpose behind it. There's a, there's a right behind it. I guess that's where the word is derived from. And I did think there was a right behind it. I did think that it, it gave me the key to the place I wanted to go which was to him. And they got out of control, quite frankly. And I got to bad places. I'm blessed. I'm in a good place. I got to a good place, you know. But unfortunately, it it took a, it took a couple detours to kind of get there. Yeah, I mean, you ended up in, in prison uh, a few times. I mean, did that get his attention? I mean, I'm sure it did, but not in the, the way you wanted. Yeah, it got his attention, but it... it it wrecked havoc on my on my home because he was a believer that you were accountable. He was the greatest teacher I ever had. And he never he didn't talk a lot. The only person he talked a bit to was me when we were on our car drives for house calls, when I would ask questions. But he was a believer in doing, not speaking. And so he was a great teacher in action. So I learned from him that you know, the most important thing was to be accountable for your your actions. And so <laughs> it was maybe a lesson I didn't want to accept at, at that point because there's one thing about talking about being accountable. There's another damn thing about being accountable. But 
<laughs> the idea seems pretty damn good until to sometimes it it's there. But I, I mean, to give you an example, I, I was a kid. I was a wayward on the streets, and I got hit with a tie iron one time in a fight. I wound up. My friends took me to his office and bleeding all over the place. I thought I had the privilege of going right to the front of the line. The nurse took me right to the front of the line. When he saw me, he said, let him wait with everybody else. My father had the biggest practice on Staten Island, probably one of the biggest practices in New York, because he took care of everybody, took care of the people that, you know, didn't have anything. So I, I waited four hours, whatever it was. And when it finally came my turn, the nurse did what a nurse does. She came with the needle of Novocaine, and he looked at her, and he said, what is that for? And obviously, she said it was to, you know, inject the Novocaine, and obviously, he knew. But he said he doesn't want that. If he's going to live a life like this, he's got to know how it feels. And of course, I said I didn't want it. And, you know, I got 15 stitches put into my head without Novocaine. Not the worst thing in the world, but not not the greatest thing either. And so when I wound up in prison, well, my father wasn't going to give me Novocaine for that. So he refused to pay bail. And again, it, it, you, you do something, you accept what goes with it. You accept being in jail. In this case, Rikers Island. And it took my mother, who obviously didn't come from the exact school that he came from because she's a mother. It's a little different. And it took her threatening him, took a little time, but to eventually get him to put up bail to get me out. And he was right. My mother was right too. She's a mother, but he was right. Ultimately he was right. But these were, again, I, I wasn't, I was getting his attention, but not, Obviously, when you get to that kind of confused place, things are confused. Things are a little haywire. And I wasn't obviously, maybe, listen, maybe this is human nature. I don't want to say this. And I've never said this before. And it just came to me now. And I hate to say it as I'm saying it, but we are supposed to say what the truths that we know, if we're going to talk, we're supposed to at least. And maybe I was trying to get even with them. Maybe I was trying to hurt them. I, you know, I just now it hit me. How could I avoid the possibility that that could have been possible? I hate to, because he was old, he was the greatest man I knew. But um, as I speak, yeah, yeah, that's that's a possibility that that was, you know, lines get blurred, and it's possible that line was blurred into there. We're trying to get his attention, but at the same time, in my selfish world trying to get back at him maybe a little bit that I didn't have what I wanted. Yeah. And was it during this time or this tumultuous time in your, your young adult life that you discovered boxing or had you boxed, you know, even as a child? Yeah, I boxed as a teenager and, uh, I it was during this time. It was a little before this time, but it was, you know, right, right at the beginning of this time where I was getting into fights in the street. I was hanging out down in a tough neighborhood. And a friend of mine was a boxer, Kevin Rooney, who later on led Mike Tyson when Customato passed away. He led Mike Tyson to, you know, to world titles and made a lot of money. He was he was my childhood friend. And we hung out on the corner together down in Stapleton area of, of Staten Island. 
And I followed him to the gym. It was a PAL gym, little dingy place. That's all it needed to be. And PAL is Police Athletic League, which they no longer exist in New York. But at that time, they did. And it was a haven for a lot of kids. And I went in there with Kevin and boxed in there. And then later on, when I started getting into more trouble, I got an opportunity to go upstate with Cuss, which was provided by Kevin, obviously. And I shouldn't say obviously. It turned out that Kevin wound up going to Cuss. After he won the New York Own Gloves, he went upstate to Customano, who was semi-retired, to train with him to become a pro ultimately. And about four months after Kevin went up there, I got into serious trouble where I was facing serious time, 10 years. And at that time, during the period that I was going to be out, when my father finally did pay bail, I was going to be out. Kevin didn't want me to get into more trouble. So he said, why don't you come up to Catskill and, and stay here with Cuss? And, and me. So I wound up going up to Catskill, continuing to box at a higher level. I won the gold gloves up there, the Adirondack gold gloves. And, you know, the story went to that, you know, it transitioned to that, that place. Right. And that's where you began you know, getting your feet wet with training. How did that happen? Would, did Cuss see something in you that you could be a, a potential trainer and he started nudging you in that direction? Cuss was a master psychologist manipulator. Don't take that the wrong way because, you know, you can be a good person and know how to maneuver and manipulate people. That's part of the magic of being successful with people, being a mover of people, you know, being a motivator, uh, inspiration to people. So Cuz had that ability and he used it when he needed to. And he said, I was the, he said, I was a born teacher. Sounded good. And um, he said that I was, you know, I was born to teach and that even though I had no interest in being a trainer at the time, he said that I could help people. I could I could do more than I could even do for myself if I was to become a champion, that I could I could develop fighters and help people get to a place they wouldn't normally get to themselves. And, a, and I'd be with them during that journey. A piece of me would be in the ring with them. That's the exact way he put it, to try again to maneuver me to do something I wasn't inclined to do. I wasn't inclined to dedicate my life to being a trainer, to helping other people. I, I was still at that selfish phase where, hey, and look, success is attached to selfish too. So it's not like you have to apologize for it all the time unless it gets out of hand. But I was at the place where I wanted to be a fighter. The idea was I was going to turn pro. I had an injury. I had a back injury. And Cus used that. He used that situation to talk me into being a trainer. It didn't take with me right away, but he kept at it. You know, he kept at it. And I was a believer in loyalty. It was, it was a thing that I... You know, again, it was taught by my father, the man who didn't talk too much. You know, loyalty is attached to commitment. Loyalty is attached to, you know, just doing what you're supposed to do, right? Loyalty, commitment, keeping your word, you know, living up to living up to whatever it is that you've obligated yourself to. And so that was that was something that was important to me. So when Cus said I couldn't fight. I couldn't go somewhere else. There was no thought of that. If Cus said I couldn't, I couldn't. So 
the option was go back on the street doing what I was doing or become a trainer. Eventually, Cus got me to that place. It, it took a little while. We took some side roads to get there that got me in trouble again. But eventually, I kind of succumbed to Cus's insistence that I would be uh, a good trainer. And then he started calling me the young master. He, he, again, he understood how to move people. He understood the psychology. He understood what you needed to hear. So I eventually, I eventually stayed up there at some point, and I started training all these fighters. These, I started developing a, a gym because you got to remember, Cus was semi-retired at the time. So there was nobody up there. There was me, Kevin Rooney, maybe three other people, maybe four. And when I, 19-year-old, 18, 19-year-old kid, and I started putting time into training kids in the gym, kids started coming. They started coming from all different areas. And next thing you know, we went from having nobody in the gym to 20 people, then 30, then 40. We had a real gym, 50 people. And I trained them all. I trained the Amateurs at night, and Jimmy Jacobs, who was very close, best friends with us, wealthy man, owned the biggest fight film collection in the world, him and Bill Caden. Later on, you, the fight fans know who they are. They were the guys that managed Mike Tyson's career at its most formidable stage. And they, you know, they basically funded Cus, and they sent pros up there, so I would train the pros in the day. And I would train amateurs at night. I had no time, but it was good. I was committed to something. And I, I created a real gym up there with, with Cus's, you know, belief behind me. That's all I needed, his belief behind me. And again, I wasn't getting paid anything, but Cus knew how to pay me. He would call me the young master. And that, I think people listening understand that. You need to hear things like that sometimes. You don't know if it's always true, but you hope it is. And it feels good, you know, it, it feels good. You, at the time, you, you probably wouldn't be lying if you've said it felt just as good as getting paid. Maybe later on, you, you, it might not. But at the time, it did. And you were, you know, I was, I, was, I was in there day and night in that gym. And then after about four, a few years, I was up there about seven years training fighters, it turned out at the end. But after several years of developing this gym, a guy named Mike Tyson came along and, you know, I developed him for another four years before I wound up leaving. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suit started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. 
Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. One part you dig into in the book about how you train these young fighters were these, you take them to these smokers. I think it was down in the Bronx, right? What what were these? Because I've never heard of these before, but they just sounded really intense. Yeah, they were intense. They were, again, you know, people that are not knowing of what it is are going to say it sounds dark and dangerous. And it, it, maybe it is, maybe it did. But you have to understand, they were in the South Bronx where there was nothing but bombed out buildings 
and people in stairwells shooting up and lost people sometimes on some of the streets where, to a certain extent, the police didn't go to certain neighborhoods. They left it alone a little bit, unless unless they were forced to go. And you'd have a lot of bombed out buildings, and then you'd have a building that was there that was actually maybe the safest, most positive thing in the neighborhood. It was a boxing club. The one I went to a lot was the Apollo, then later the Jerome, and then there was Castle Hill. There was there was so many of them. But the ones in the Bronx was the Apollo, and it was right where the L, the L would run right across on the same level as it. So it would shake the whole building, sparks would go up, it, it would rumble by, you couldn't hear anything for those couple minutes. Three flights of steps to get up there. As I said already, you'd you'd walk past, you know, you'd you'd smell urine, you'd see discarded needles. You might see somebody possibly shooting up. So yeah, I mean, as I say it now, people are saying, Teddy, what do you mean it sounds like it could be a little dark and day? Yeah, it, it had that. But it was a safe and the safest place for these kids. Anywhere from ages 10, I'll tell you, sometimes maybe a little less. And again, I'm going into that area where people are going to say, is that responsible? Well, is it responsible being in a neighborhood where you could get shot? Is it responsible where dope is very readily available? Where you could get hit over the head with a pipe? Stabbed? But now you had a place where hopes, you know, hopes were formed and developed. Hope and dreams. And that's... That's not dangerous. And that's what this place was. It was, uh, it was a few of them around. They were non-sanctioned fights. So, again, yeah, there was, there was no doctors. There was The AAU at the time was supposed to overlook boxing. And then later on, it was called the uh, ABF, I think, American Boxing Federation, USA Boxing. But they weren't in these places. These places were, they were on their own. And it was a chance for the proprietor of the place to to charge $3 at the door, sell little cups of rum, beers, food, and you're able to help yourself with the rent. And that meant keeping the doors open for hope, where these kids could come and they could train. They could train, they could box, they could have a chance to get out of those places, have a chance to become Sugar Ray Leonard, Wilfredo Benitez, you know. All these great fighters that they saw on television and they heard about on the radio with their fathers, maybe their uncles, somebody in their family, maybe maybe a neighbor. And they could get a chance to, to become something, a chance to feel better, to feel better about where they were, about who they were. It was important. It was the most important place in the neighborhood. Now maybe you understand. I, I, I gave you both sides. I mean, you know, the other side is tough. But without this side, it's unredeemable. With this side, it's redeemable. There's a purpose to it. And the place would be packed. And it was a chance for kids after the trainers did all that work teaching them the basics for months. It was a chance for them now to find out if they could be a fighter, see what it was, to get experience. You know, you could catch with your father all day on the sidelines, out in the street or in the driveway. You know, if you're lucky enough to come from a place that had a driveway, these kids weren't. But you could play catch with them all day. But then there came a time you had to be in a game. Because now in a game, 
Maybe that ball that's thrown the same way looks different. Why? Because somebody's watching. Because it's a game. And now you get a chance to get up to bat. So you learn all these things, how to hit a bag, how to throw a jab straight, how to throw right hand, how to follow with a hook, how to move your head to avoid punches. And now you get a chance to get the real experience to find out, can I do it? Do I want to do it? Can I make the right choices when the choices come? And you start learning how to be a man. You start learning how to grow up. You start learning how, <laughs> I mean, nobody outlines that to you. You're, you're learning to be a fighter, but you're learning a lot more than that. And so these that's what a smoker was. So you go into these places and you're a nervous kid. You're walking up those steps. You got a chance to think about turning around. That's another part of being a man, another part of growing up. Do I keep going? Do I find it out? Do I get out? Do I escape? Or do I keep going? What do I do? And you get up there and you got the Spanish music blaring from four foot speakers and the you know the the pom pom drums and all that going on. You're nervous. I used to joke with the kids. I said, "Don't worry. I I'm not going to tell anybody." You know what? I, I nobody else could see it, and they used to look. What do you mean? What do you mean? You know, see your heart beating out of your chest where your shirt's going up and down, and they would look at their chest real quick to see if it was true. <laughs> of course, because they knew what they felt. I said, "Don't worry. Um, nobody else saw it, and all these other kids in there, they feel the same way." So you started to. Teach them how to control their emotions. Started to teach them what what it was all about. You started to teach them that it was okay to be scared. Everyone else is scared. You just wouldn't know it by looking at them. But you wouldn't know it by looking at you either. Because you don't even realize it. You're taking the first step already in overcoming it. By not showing it. And by dealing with it. And then they get in the ring. And they fight. I'll give you an example. An extreme example. I had a kid named Maymore. This kid came to, to me in Catskill Gym because he was getting picked on. His lunch money was say he had no father. A lot of my kids had no fathers. Uh, it's not an accident they didn't have fathers. That's why they came to the gym. They were looking to find the replacement for what a father would have gave them. Not just in the mentoring. That was part of it. Somebody caring. Somebody telling them when they're doing something right. Somebody got to be there to tell you that. Or when you're doing something wrong, somebody got to be there to tell you that. It's important. And it can't always be a woman. Nothing, not, not taking, saying, oh, women, of course they can do the job. But sometimes it's got to be a father. And this kid made more, had no father. So he heard about the gym and he started showing up. But the funny thing was, he would show up and he'd leave. Show up, leave. So I'll tell you one thing. As a trainer, you become a psychologist without going to school. Because if you don't understand the psyche of a human being, you better get the freak out of this business. Because it ain't just about X's and O's. It's about people. It's about how people feel and how they want to feel and what they're not feeling. So after a few times of seeing this kid dart in out, he was 80 pounds. He was 11 years old, 80 pounds. So finally one day I said, come over here. See, I had already gotten sort of the, the, the profile, if you want, of Maine. His name was Maymore. 
I had my kids in the gym. I asked about him and they told me everything about him. Yeah, he's got no father. He gets picked on by a kid named Goo, takes his lunch money and, you know, stuff like that. So now I got I got what I need for my kids. So next time he comes in, he said, come over here. And he's looking around like, are you talking to me? Come here. So I, I show him how to throw a jab. I throw a jab out by the mirror. And then I said, you try that. And he tried it. I said, that's good. That's good. You could, you could have a good jab. And then I tell him to throw right hand. That's good. Wow. I said, have you, have you trained somewhere else? He looks at me like I'm crazy. He says, no. You sure? Because I don't want to find out you trained somewhere else. I'm taking someone else's fighter. Goes, no, no, no. I didn't train anywhere else. All right, good. All right. Well, come up here tomorrow. Bring gym short stuff. Six o'clock. Be here. We'll start training. And that was it. That's what he needed. So I would teach him. He picked up very fast. But then when it came time to get in the ring and boxing, sparring, then he would fall apart. He wasn't ready for that. It was too much. So the funny thing was, I was a guy that came from this troubled past. Where do you think the gym was? Of course. Where else? Above a police station. And what's across the hall in a little place called Catskill? Of course. Uh, a courtroom. <laughs> and we were in Catskill. They didn't lock the doors. So we had the courtroom at night. Nobody there, you know, to most nights. Uh, court was open, whatever it was, during the day usually. So we have the courtroom. We got the police station downstairs. So when Maine, the first time I put Maine into box, he, he ran out of the, he ran right out of the gym, started crying because he was scared. And he figured that, probably figured that he couldn't handle this, obviously. Figured he was yellow. Well, why wouldn't he figure he was yellow? He he got his lunch money taken every day. So I I would go out to the gym, have some of my older kids keep it going, and I'd go out there and talk to him. And the funny thing was, there was no better place to talk. You had to sit down, go in the courtroom. And I had fun with it a couple of times. I, I remember one time thinking after... We did this a few times because it took a while with me to get him to that place. I remember at one point I'm sitting in the in the judge's chair <laughs> and I couldn't help but think, you know what, it's it's a lot better sitting here than on the other side where I used to sit a few years ago. And I I kinda thought like maybe I had the right to sit there now. Or if I didn't, I still was gonna do it anyway because it was kind of it was my own way of Kind of making things, uh, getting getting things back, uh, getting back something a little bit. So we would talk, and I would tell him, you know, I want to tell you a story, and he'd be crying, and then he'd start calming down a little bit. I say, you know, I know it's got nothing to do with you, but when I was a kid, I used to, I used to get picked on. So you could imagine what a shocker was because I run the gym and I'm known as a former fighter and all that stuff. This kid looks up to me. So he says, you used to get picked on? I said, yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, yeah, I got picked on. And some guy used to take my lunch money. Now, he doesn't know I know everything about him. So he said, well, what did you do? I said, well, I used to. I used to give it to him and then I would go home and I'd cry and, you know, I'd and then I, I'd feel terrible, but I wouldn't tell anybody. So he said, well, 
what happened? And I said, well, one day I just got tired of, I got tired of being hungry. And I got tired of feeling this way. And I started to realize that I'm going to keep feeling this way unless I do something about it. And I started to realize that, you know, the way I feel is, and, and what I have to do is two different things. If I do something, it's only gonna, it's only gonna last for a minute. I said, how, how long does a fight last before somebody breaks it up? A minute? 30 seconds? It's, but if I keep letting this guy do this and I keep going through what I'm going through, I'm going to keep feeling this. It doesn't go away. I feel it at night. I feel it in the morning. I feel it during school. It's forever. So he said, what happened? I said, well, you know the garbage pails where you dump your trash? He said, yeah. I said, well, one day the guy asked me for my money and I didn't give it to him. He said, what happened? I said, he wound up in the garbage pail. And he said, is that true? I said, yeah. And, you know, he started laughing. And I said, you know, he said, I never knew you were afraid. I said, I'm afraid all the time. I said, but like you just said, you never know it. But I'm afraid of things all the time. But I'm more afraid of how I used to feel when I didn't do something about it, when I didn't stand up for myself. I'm more afraid of that because I know how long that lasts. I know that lasts forever. I know the other thing doesn't last that long. So we went back in the gym. The next day I get him in the ring again. We might get into two minutes before he break down. Go to the courtroom, sit in the judge's chambers, you know, have a talk. And after about a week or two of this, he got through a whole round. He got through two rounds. He got through three rounds. He got through four rounds. And I took him to the Bronx. It was time to fight. But I had to find the right guy. I found a kid named Raul Rivera. Raul had the same problems as Maine. He was scared. He was insecure. He had no father. He had no confidence. He was picked on. I put them together. And I'm telling you, it was the worst fight ever for people to watch. Because they grabbed each other, they looked at the referee, they they held on to each other, they they probably threw about a half a punch each for the whole three rounds, but it was the most beautiful fight I ever watched. Because it was allowing the kid Maine to deal with what he had to deal with at the right temperature and to get through what he had to get through. And I put him in six times in a row, six weeks in a row with each other. Now the proprietor Nelson said, Teddy, you're making me throw up. I mean, I can't watch this stuff no more. I mean, I, I really, I'm, <laughs> I can't watch this. I, you're killing me. <laughs> and I said, look, you're going to keep watching it. You're going to keep watching it because this is what they need. And you know what? By the sixth time, they were fighting. They weren't grabbing. They weren't looking at the referee. They were fighting. And even Nelson had to say, I cannot believe it. I cannot believe these are the same people. And that's that's what we did. Yeah, it sounds like you weren't weren't just teaching these kids how to box. You were you were teaching them to be men. Yeah, I mean, you weren't you weren't separating the thoughts that way or articulating it that way. But yeah, right. yeah, they they were they were learning they were learning the magic of being a grown up of being a man. You know what the magic is to learn. And to understand that you have the choice of how you behave. 
not somebody else, not circumstances, not the environment, even the environment of the South Bronx, tough environment, beautiful people there, great people, tough environment, tough environment, that those things did not dictate choice. They did not dictate control. They did not tell you how you had to behave. You did. You did. And they learned that. They learned that no matter what, no matter how many of these things were lined up there to have basically excuses to be less, that at the end of the day, it was your choice, nobody else's, your choice of how to behave, your choice of what you were going to do. They learned that. You know what that is? That's the prelude to being a man. That's what it's about. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that you, 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 you hit on this as you're describing the story of the smokers, where it's just this terrible place, people shooting up dope, urine, whatever. That's kind of like the story of boxing in general. Like ever since the beginning, boxing's been criticized as barbaric, lowbrow. It's been looked down upon by the media. And I'm talking going back to the 19th century, but for students of the sport, you hear these amazing stories of individuals from a lot of times minority groups, Irish, black, Jews, who were in lower class. They, were, they could have gone to a life of crime, but then they found boxing. And for, a lot, for just a few of those guys, they became champions, champions of the world. For most of those guys they, that didn't do that, they still learned about discipline controlling emotions, managing their fear, those skills that you've been talking about throughout these stories. And they became champions. What is a champion? Champion, I don't know, for me, I don't know when I finally was smart enough to understand this, but for me now, it's got less to do with gloves on your hand and how hard a punch you can take and how great endurance you have both you know, emotionally, psychologically, and physical endurance, it's got a lot less to do with how fast your hands are than it has to do with how you behave. And that can be equated into anything. And it is, you know, whether it's <laughs> whatever it is, whether it's to be a, a a teacher, a carpenter, a board member, a you know, a CEO, a, a guy working as a laborer, but to become a champion, to become someone who can make his own choices, that is completely free and completely separate from the environment, completely separate from what's going on in your world, what's going on around you, that you can make a choice, that you can say, today, I'm going to be the best freaking carpenter in the world. I'm going to be the best freaking teacher in the world. I'm going to be the best freaking laborer in the world. Um, whatever it is, because you know that it's you who makes that choice. You know that you're in control of that. And that's my definition of becoming an, a professional, doing what you need to do no matter what goes on around you, no matter how you feel when you wake up that day. but. It's becoming a man. It's becoming a whole person. And yeah, you know, the greatest thing I can say about boxing, if somebody said, Teddy, you got one minute, describe, describe boxing. 
I would say, okay, the world's not fair sometimes. Now they listen. Oh, okay, all right. And maybe sometimes you feel like you haven't been treated fair. You feel like you haven't been given as good a cards as your guy down the street was to play with. So this is what boxing is. On one given night, you can get in the ring. If you trained hard enough, if you if you cared enough, if you were determined enough, if you were driven enough, if you were prepared enough, on one given night, no matter where you came from, no matter who your parents are, no matter your ethnicity, your religion, anything, on that one given night, you could make a choice to be the best. You, despite everything that happened up to that point, can have your hand risen as the best, as the champion of the world, where everything is fair and right on that one given night. That's boxing. You, you've trained... With his 18 world champions, including Michael Moore, who was the heavyweight champion when he beat Evander Holyfield. I mean, during all this time, you've been training kids, amateurs, pros. Now, what's the hardest thing to to teach a boxer? Is it that idea that they they're in control, that they're in charge, that they can make the choices? Is that the hardest thing, or is there something else? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the hardest thing to teach a fighter is to know that the hardest thing to accept, to get a fight, and I'm going to use that word instead of your word. Okay. The hardest thing, no, no, it's all good, but the hardest thing to get somebody to accept, that's what a teacher has to do. To get somebody to accept is that, and I'm putting this in the most simplest way, that you either have reasons why, and you develop those reasons why you can or you have excuses why you can't. Bang. Bang. That's it. I know that's, you know, as I said, as simplistic as you can get. But it's not that simple when you try to unravel it and you try to execute it. But that's what it is. You either have reasons and you take those reasons because people said you couldn't do it because they said you were a yellow coward. Because your your stepfather says you're a piece of garbage, because you got no father, because your mother is is on drugs, whatever it is, whatever it is, you either you take those you make those reasons why you're gonna do it, because you just want to do it, because you just want to feel good, and you know what else? You just want to know who you are. I just a kid just wants to know who they are. They want to know. Am I somebody good? Am I somebody worthwhile? Because I heard a lot of people say I wasn't. And am I somebody worthy of of something, of success, of feeling good? Am I allowed to feel good? So you either have reasons to go forward in those directions or everything I just said, take everything I just said and use it on the left-hand column as excuses why you won't and why you can't. You get them to understand that? And you're on your way. Something you've also said in your in your interviews and in your book is that a fighter isn't really a fighter until 
they've faced resistance. Well, what's an example of a fighter who hasn't faced resistance? Forget about a fighter. You in life, in anything. You're you're not a teacher until you had a kid in the classroom trying to put the classroom on fire. And I'm kidding around. I'm exaggerating. (laughs) (laughs) I hope there's nobody trying to put their teacher's classrooms on fire out there. Please don't do that. But until you've gotten a kid that doesn't let you go home so easy, that that is not so agreeable, you know, that that is not so committed to what you want them committed to. Until you overcome that, you're not a teacher. Until you as a doctor, you open up somebody and veins that woman is supposed to be bleeding are bleeding. You're not a doctor. You're just a guy that understands the anatomy. You're a guy that passed a lot of tests. You you go into a courtroom and all of a sudden a district attorney throws a curveball. All of a sudden the judge says, no, you can't use that brief today. I don't care that you put four months work into it. No, you can't. You're not a lawyer. <laughs> you thought you were a lawyer because you got a diploma that's up on a wall that looks pretty freaking good, but you're not a lawyer. Not until you deal with that. Not until you overcome something. You're not a fighter. It's the same thing. You're just a guy that's in good shape. You're a guy that has physical abilities. You're a guy who inherited good genetics. You're a guy who's going through an athletic exhibition. Great. Looks good. But until there's resistance, until there's something to overcome, you're not a fighter. And that's when a lot of fighters who maybe have that talent, those genes, when they face that resistance, they just, that's when they give up. And they don't know that idea that it's harder to give up than it is to fight. Yeah, that idea is so simple. I say it again. I've been saying it for the whatever amount of time we've been talking in so many words, in different words. But, you know, I say it again. It is harder to quit than it is to fight. Because when you fight, it's over with in a second, 10 seconds, really. I mean, really, am I exaggerating? A fight, a world title fight, if it goes the distance, lands 36 minutes. That's a blink of the eye in somebody's life. A blink of the eye. It's a second. Uh, something difficult you got to deal with. A minute, a half a minute, five seconds, whatever it is. That's how long it lasts to deal with it. But you don't fight. Whatever your fight is, you don't deal with it. And you quit, you submit, you give in. That doesn't go away. That's there all day, all night. Comes at the worst times to you. Two o'clock in the morning, you can't sleep. You lay in bed. You get up. You walk into the washroom. You look in the mirror. And there it is. There it is. There it is. It's still there. The next day, still there. The next day, still there. Yeah, if you understand it in the way I just said it, the real way, yeah, it's damn easier to fight than it is to quit. You know, you've spent your your career training men to be, young men to be fighters and men. I mean, I, you started this when you were 19, 20. How, how is your conception of what it means to be a man 
evolved since then. And I'm curious, I mean, obviously your father has a big influence on what you think of what a man is, that whole idea of accountability. But as you've gotten older, have you noticed that your father's influence has it gotten stronger or maybe even cusses or maybe other people, or maybe you've discovered things that on your own on what it means to be a man? It was my father, you know, cuss taught me how to put it into words, taught me how to teach it, how to articulate it. Yes. He put it into form, into usable form, custard, brilliant man, special man. But the real architect of this, if, if you will, use such a description, the former of this, my father. There's no greater teacher than example. There's, there's no greater lessons than to watch, to see, that no matter how this man felt, I mean, this is a guy who, no matter how he felt, he did what he had to do. This is a guy who had to get surgery. after Back in the days when when surgery in certain ways was much more evasive, much more dangerous. I mean, my father had a, I don't know if it was a double or triple hernia or whatever the hell they called it, but he got it as an intern when he was interning. He went to the NYU Medical School and he interned at Bellevue. He told me that when you got out of Bellevue, you're ready for everything. And he saved an obese person's life, it turned out, when he was a young intern. The person, it was a woman, had collapsed on a street. He got her off the street, you know, pulled her to wherever he had to, and she had a heart attack. He's basically, he saved her life. And he formed a hernia. Well, he didn't have time to take care of that. You know, so 35 years later, finally he had to get it. It was strangling him. Now, I didn't know nothing about that stuff. But one day I walked into his bedroom. I shouldn't have, but again, I'm seven years old. I'm eight years old, whatever the heck I was. I walk in, I open the door, and there was a big mirror that was right to the left that could show you what was to the right of the room. So I looked in the mirror, and there he was a way I'd never seen in my life. He was bent over, obviously in pain, and he had this contraption around him, around his midsection, around his groin area. It was a thrust. I didn't know what the hell it was. It was made out of leather, and it was to keep his intestines from popping out. It was to keep the hernia, which was popping way out, to keep it in place. That's what they had in those days. And I I was confused. He got angry. He said, close the door, leave the room. And of course, I never forgot that. You know what that told me? I didn't know a damn thing, but I knew he was in pain. I knew my father was in pain every day, and he still did everything he was supposed to do every day in pain, every day. And he waited 35 years to get the surgery, got it done in doctor's hospital that he found it. And I know this is crazy. And my father was eccentric. Okay, you know, I think great people are. I think special people are sometimes. And maybe we call it eccentric, and maybe it's really special. Maybe it's what what works for them. But he he actually had given himself some anesthesia or had started the, the process by giving himself something just before he got to the, just as he was walking in the hospital. So by the time they got him ready, he saved them time. 
He was he was already starting to be, you know, a little bit <laughs> ready for the anesthesia, I guess, and stuff. Whatever they have to give. I mean, he he knew what to do. So they got him on the stretcher, and they're taking him to the OR room. And he says, hold on a minute. Stop here at the station. Nurse's station. Stop here. Well, Dr. Atlas, we got to get you into the OR. No, 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 no. Got to stop here. I got to... I just got to go over a couple orders for a few patients. And he had a he had a sense of humor that was very different than other people. He said, just in case this don't go right, he says, I got to make sure that these, this poor lady gets out of here Monday. <laughs> I, <laughs> I got to make sure she gets discharged. And I got to make sure that this other guy gets his medicines changed. So, so stop at the station. He stopped at the station, looked at the orders, Made a few adjustments, and then he said, all right, go ahead. Let's go. Take me. He was supposed to be in the hospital at least eight, nine days in those days in the hospital one day. Now, was it, was it the right way to do it? No. No, it wasn't. Doctors are the worst patients. We get it. But he could do it. He could do it. He understood it was a matter of dealing with the pain. It was a matter of what his responsibility. He was back working in his office three days later. He knew he could do it. Was it convenient? No. Could you do it? Yes. And that's what I learned. And that's how I learned it. And to answer your question, I think I'm remembering it. Even though I went down this road, you said, what is it? What is it to be a man? What is it to be this? Convenience. That's what it is, to understand the difference between convenience and responsibility. That's it. That's it. Well, Teddy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about what you're doing, the podcast, anything else you got going on? They can, oh, they can go to the podcast. I think you go on, You, I don't know much about this stuff. I'm a caveman. I'm, I'm the most unsophisticated uh, media guy in the world, but somebody fortunately does this for me and talked me into doing it. So I have a podcast, you go on YouTube and you put in The Fight with Teddy Atlas. And I know there's some iTunes and other stuff that you can go on, you know, on on something on uh on diff- sure. And what are they what do you talk about on your podcast? We talk about life. You know what I, I said from the beginning? I said I'm gonna use this podcast to talk boxing, but to use boxing to connect the dots in life. Because for me, everybody's fighting. <laughs> I don't mean it that way. I don't mean it the way it sounds because there is a lot of fighting going on out there. But what I mean is we're all in a fight. It's just a matter of what the hell you're fighting for. And for me, what better to use to kind of take people through things than boxing to explain the fight they might be dealing with. So I talk about boxing. I connect the dots with life. And... um I try to go places where maybe people would like to go, but they just don't know how. And I try to show them how. And I just recorded my book into an audio book. It's coming out next month. So hopefully that'll be something, too, that people will, you know, that people will find interesting. Fantastic. Well, Teddy Atlas, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you.
My guest today was Teddy Atlas. You can check out his book. It's called Atlas from the Streets to the Ring, A Son's Struggle to Become a Man. It's a great story. Also check out his podcast, The Fight. It's available on anywhere you can listen to podcasts. And check out our show notes at aom.is slash atlas where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. We've got over 500 episodes there, a couple episodes about boxing, as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. A lot of articles about boxing as well. So if there's something that interests you, check it out. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness Podcast, you can do so only on stitcherpremium.com. Head over to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code MANLINESS to get a month free of Stitcher Premium. After you sign up at stitcherpremium.com, you can download the Stitcher app on iOS or Android and start listening to ad free episodes of the art of manliness and if you enjoyed this show and got something out of it i'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on itunes or stitcher it helps out a lot and if you've done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think we get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time this is brett mckay remind you not only listen to the AWIN podcast but put what you've heard into action BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.